0: Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I am Keith McCullough and welcome to our investing summit. This is the seventh year that we've done this. We do it biannually. For those of you that are joining, uh, for the first time, welcome and uh, thank you broadly. for This is a record audience for us and we're uh, quite humbled by that and that's quite exciting for us as we go throughout this. Uh, this, this day today is going to be the first day where we have three conversations, of course, and then we're going to get into, uh, day two and day three. But, uh, what we do in this is, uh, just one second here. Uh, what we do in this, uh, is, is, is have, what we try to have is a 40 to 45 minute conversation, uh, with the first 30 to 35 minutes being a back and forth. Uh, between me and the guest, and then, of course, your live QA, um, so again, you just pop questions in the queue, and your questions get voted up or down, so make sure you have some good questions, all right? You should have good questions. For our first guest, uh, lead-off hitter, Mr. Diego Paria. Thank you for uh, joining us and for, uh, for having the bravery to go first, and thanks for dialing the VIX up to 25 just for the, uh, for the investing <laughs>
1: <summer>. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, we we have to have the guy who's uh, the volatility guy on on uh, on a day where we get some some real market volatility. Um, you know, maybe we start with that. I want to. I definitely want to get into to to topics like China, uh, in, inflation broadly. Uh, but a day like today, just to start with that, I don't want this to be just you know myopically focused on today. But today is the day where people go, "Wow, that's a lot more energy inflation uh, than maybe I was expecting." That's um, not certainly certainly not something that I, we weren't uh, expecting. We're, we're we're still hocked up on inflation here. Um, but it's a day where they're like, "That's not that's not good enough for me." Uh, f- broadly, for the consumer or for stocks, I think that that's kind of the message, at least for now. Rising interest rates and a, and a rising energy tape isn't exactly what's getting everyone excited.
1: Yeah, I guess it's uh, it's it's one of the uh, Achilles' heels of of the system now. I mean, obviously, uh, the entire debate about uh, inflation, which is by the way a, a no-brainer as a sort of the one of the degrees of freedom of the monitoring fiscal abuse, uh, this has been dismissed as temporary, etc., uh, by by central bankers, sort of kicking the can down the road. Yet we see energy prices creeping in the background uh a lot of people obviously focus purely on on crude oil but uh this is way beyond crude oil i mean in fact the the story is much more about natural gas and electricity prices and it's not just a a u.s story it's it's a global story it's it's happening in europe it's happening in china it's happening everywhere and 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 it's a combination of factors that are uh, unlikely to disappear uh in in the immediate future at least with with ease We're talking about a problem that uh, comes from severe uh, underinvestment uh, over the last decade uh, uh, plus, you know, due due to bad returns, but also looking into the next decade due to all the environmental considerations. So that's obviously impacting the the supply side. We have, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the demand side, we have uh, obviously this extraordinary uh, dynamics with, with covid where we're seeing a return with vengeance of, of of the transport, the consumer, and this has been both on the gasoline side as well as industrial, and now potentially opening up uh, on, on the airline traffic, which is which is uh, with the U.S. opening up, and and this is happening with um, with also uh, climate issues. You know, we had a pretty cold winter last year, and that really uh, basically brought inventories to to very tight levels. And the one thing we always say in commodity markets is you can't print oil. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can print anything you want, you know, currencies and bonds and equities, but you can't really print oil, and, and that's that's part of the issue or or natural gas or whatever. So we've seen, uh, you know, European natural gas prices go up ten times uh, since nice. since last year, which is just completely crazy. Yeah. In barrel of oil equivalent terms, we're approaching 180 to 200 dollars a barrel equivalent. Uh, this is three three times oil, pretty much unprecedented. Uh, the the global prices are, are tightening, and this is happening with uh, inventories that are tight, and as we're heading into the winter. So if, if you think about, you know, we saw OPEC today, you know, increasing production uh, modestly, uh, modestly, you know, 400,000 barrels a day, being uh, perhaps the impact less than the expected demand if you get uh, the the airlines coming in you see this huge move in gas prices, potentially leading to substitution effects of analysts say between one to 2 million barrels a day. And and also the the colder winter, you know, uh, potentially tighten things up. So in a market where things are fairly inelastic, meaning, you know, uh, the ability to respond to to increases in prices, be it through uh, production increases or Demand destruction is, is is very limited in energy prices in in a number of commodities, and so the idea of a hundred dollar oil is is potentially around the corner. If a couple of things go go wrong, the the products, which is what what matters really, you know, things like diesel are already there. So whilst you see the headline number in crude oil at eighty, uh, the, when you add the the, the margin from the distillation and and refining, it's it's already there. And so, you know, if you think about all these dynamics, the possibility of a a very big spike in energy, which is really uh, very bad news for for obviously inflation and for the world economy, is unfortunately greater than many people pay attention to. And again, this is not something that I think we'll be able to resolve uh, quickly or, or easily.
0: Yeah, when you when you talk about $100 oil uh, and or $10 U.S. gas, obviously European gas is much higher. Guys show slide 88. I think a lot of people actually, Diego, that don't do commodities but currently look at the natural gas chart, they might say, I missed it. Um, I'm talking about the U.S. gas chart, but it's six. I mean, that's not even – that's not even remotely close to where it
1: Yeah, th- think about it. Uh, th- one of the funny things in commodities is, is that we use all these different funny units, right? So MMBTUs, dollar per barrel equivalent, uh, you know, British thermal units, uh, <laughs> whatever. Uh, when you actually, if, if, if uh, the, a very helpful uh, rule of thumb is uh, you convert natural gas, gas prices, you multiply by 5.8, so roughly six. So the, the chart you're, you follow, you're showing you know six dollars 7 mBTU is still uh, 36. So in, in in relative terms, when you look at uh, like for like apples with apples, uh, natural gas prices in the US are still a fraction of where they are in other parts of the world. And there's a mechanism called LNG, liquefied natural gas, which effectively are like floating pipelines. It gives you the ability to take gas in one part of the world, liquefy it by bringing it. To, to extremely cold temperatures and then regasify it and this is not something that is as easy to do because you need to build the infrastructure mm-hmm. and this is a bit like male female it's not that easy i mean you <laughs> a country like the us was was effectively positioned to be an importer of, of gas and and therefore doesn't have has the regas but not the liquefying and so as the world looks to to globalize uh, you need to do big investments but in the short term it's not that easy to actually uh, level in, level in those, those things. But, uh, but as of right now, the US has, has a bit of an edge uh, with, with lower uh, uh, power prices than other parts of the world, but you should expect some degree of, of equalization, even if it's uh, very unlikely to, to, to arm each other. This is, this is yeah. just too big of a gap.
0: Yeah, the, uh, I, I, I'm shocked that you, that you didn't tell me that these prices were high just due to easy base effects in the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that you gave two big, big part of it. two, um, you know, that's what the transitory crowd wanted everyone to believe the Fed needed to believe. Let's put it, put that on the table. Um, but you mentioned a couple big things. Maybe unpack that. I mean, you got underinvestment on the one side and we can circle, uh, a big circle around ESG there. Uh, potentially, which is a government policy, of course, and then and then you have on the other side, you know, you 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 really partly explain this due to fiscal spending and and money printing. You know, what like do you have to unpack uh, both of those things and then pack them back in and just say it's the government or or not? Well, there
1: are plenty of dynamics. I think on the one of the interesting things that is kind of shocking the market a little bit is is we went through this super cycle with with shale, for example, and and, and the, the shale was a game changer uh, because historically, when you thought about, you know, c- crude oil projects, uh, you know, think of Alaska or, you know, any others. Uh, this is really a very long term cycle. I mean, we we're talking about from the moment you say, get go to the minute you see that gasoline in your in your car, we could talk about 10, even 15 years. And, and this is the type of super cyclical event that you had in crude oil with extraordinarily long, uh, cycles and yeah. that, uh, that, that, contributed to the volatility. But what shale did in some way was sort of dramatically change this because we had the ability to effectively respond to spikes uh, much quicker. Uh, and, and, and also, you know, do it in a way where you didn't create huge damage if you had to close those, those wells. And, and also you could do it at a completely different price range. So we've seen how the long-term price of crude oil, uh, you know, effectively these producers uh, needed to borrow money. They wanted to hedge themselves. And they were quite happy to do that in the sort of 40 to 50 price range. And so in, in that sense, what we've seen recently, and this is partially uh, legislation, you know, environment or others plus investments and, and bad investments, I mean, energy got pretty burned uh, several times, you've seen that lack of investment impacting also mm-hmm. the these parts of the market. So if you look at the the back end of the crude oil curve, you're now thinking about five years around got it $55, uh, $60, so still very significantly uh, below the, the spot. Uh, that's something that, um, you know, you, you could argue both both cases, but certainly if if we're talking about something more structural in the energy market, it, it's a great opportunity to lock in great prices. Uh, but also on on the producer side, it gives arguably less of an incentive because you might be very uh, touched by the eighty or ninety price in the front, but what really matters to you when you lock these things. So it, this is an interesting dynamic. I think it it's, it goes very closely with uh, policies and and governments, uh, and and that's also true for infrastructure and other things that you mentioned, which are. They, they need to plug the hole somehow. And, and this monetary and fiscal spending without limits is obviously been a big driver alongside ESG and, and electric vehicles and all sorts of demand transformations, which may or may not materialize uh, in, 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 in the risk. I think given the, the the expectations in the market in some areas, it's going to give a lot of volatility. So we, we are entering this world where I think volatility is is, is going to remain elevated And that's because you have push and pull forces that are very extreme in both in both directions and uh, so i think it's it's about which drivers matter most which ones can you undo and i think in the case of commodities inventories are something that are very difficult to to come about in in, in, or or to resolve because it will take a substantial period of excess uh, production above demand before you can rebuild those inventories and for the time being, the market is in a completely different dynamic of perhaps uh, incentivizing that production and destroying demand and also looking at the substitution effects. So yeah. all these forces come into play and they make it very difficult, but many of them are pointing in, in, in one direction, which is higher.
0: Yeah. A lot of people um, like to just call this, I mean, there's a macro tourism uh, to it, to be clear, but a lot of people that have been in the transitory inflation camp, i.e. they're not long. Commodities or inflation. I, I find that uh, an interesting statement. Of course, if, you, if 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 it was if inflation was trending, that would be a core asset allocation. You'd be long uh, the commodities and, and not think that it was just going to magically go away. Uh, but a lot of these people just will say that it's just about the supply you know, supply chain bottlenecks. It's on the cover of Barrons for God's sakes today, or at least this weekend. It's the only page of Barrons that I read. Um, but I mean, it's 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 what it is. You know that, and, and then you have. People like you that just explain that there's a longer-term underinvestment, there are massive capex holes in natural resources, that for whatever reason, I mean, I, I send it to a lot of our institutional uh, accounts or clients, uh, Diego, where they'll have that view that it, this is transitory and just bottlenecks, and once the bottlenecks come undone, the commodity prices are going to collapse. And I'll say, no, 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 no. Like, why don't you read, you know, what this person's saying, what that person's saying, this person's saying. And what you find is that a lot of the people that are s- talking about the supply side and the natural resource capex holes are buy-siders. You know, they're, and and there a lot of hedge fund managers, a lot of uh, private equity investors will buy buy into that view uh, because they're doing the work. Whereas the street consensus is a little, was uh, a lot more like the Fed's view of transitory inflation.
1: Yeah, look, bottlenecks are are obviously another key factor, and this I think it touches on on multiple other uh, areas. I mean, one is if freight on itself is a. Uh, a commodity, right? And you've right. seen this explosion in in prices, which means um uh, the, the if you're transporting, you know, uh, iPhones or you know, expensive stuff, is is it's not so much of an issue. If your cargo goes, you know, the cost of shipping goes from 1,000 to 20,000, but if your product, the the entire value is 20,000, then <laughs> the picture dramatically changes. And and this is something that. It's interesting, I mean, I've given some thought lately, but how it's actually the cheaper components that are suffering the most and that in some ways are creating these bottlenecks on, on, yeah. on bigger stuff, uh, chips included. So I, I think beyond that, uh, there are other uh, dimensions related to, to to bottlenecks and fiscal and, and, and stuff, which ties into, into trade wars and currency wars. I mean, everything, I think, uh, ultimately everything we're seeing revolves around monetary and fiscal policies uh without limits uh and and this we've talked at length you know perhaps and i think it's worth for people to understand how art- artificial the entire setup is you know with artificial low interest rates artificial low inflation but i think one of the dynamics that is also hitting is tariffs and and, and as we discussed i think you know currency wars is is this dynamic where you know, is the bigger thy neighbor dynamic. You know, I, I want to uh, basically get out of trouble by by devaluing the currency and and passing the problem through somebody else. And this is something that I think it's coming back in a, in a meaningful way, and that uh, ultimately, how do you defend from it? I mean, so far, we've seen pretty much all central banks doing the same thing. So the other guy brings rates to zero, I need to defend myself, I do the same. Mm-hmm. But at some point, there's also an element of, you know, uh, trade wars. Right. And yep. and if you devalue by 20 percent, I'm going to tariff you by 20 percent. And so you bring all these things together, the underinvestment, the big trends, the green initiatives, which are giving us the excuse to spend uh, like crazy. And then you see the drawbacks that uh, come into the form of, of higher commodity prices and bottlenecks. And it's all of a big mess where the energy, uh, the inflation, uh, you know, angle, I think it's it's really uh, you know both the solution, because this is this is how the movie ends, but uh, it's also the Achilles heel that exposes the bluff from central banks and how their uh, monitoring fiscal policies without limits create you know solve problems. Which I I, I I have to insist, and this is one of the most important messages for me is you do not solve problems by printing money and taking debt. You know you just don't solve them. What you do is you delay the problem. You kick the can down the road in form of debt and whatever, it's a generational issue first. Second, you're going to transfer the problem as we discussed, you know, through currency wars and trade wars, creating these dynamics. But third, and very importantly, you're transforming the problem. You know, you're transforming the problem uh, into bubbles, into inflation, into inequality. And and ultimately and sadly, uh, these policies actually enlarge the problem. So we're in a situation where we by now have bubbles that are too big to fail, which is the reason why central banks have been trapped with artificial valuations that on the one hand, inflation is putting pressure on them, tapering and hiking rates. But if you actually do that, you see that the emperor has no clothes. You see a lot of these artificial valuations collapsing, and that will force them to intervene and print more and stuff. So we're in this circle with a very difficult exit where the end game is inflation and and, and sadly, stagflation, and it and this is all uh, related. I mean, you can you can pinpoint and and try to to blame uh, one one part of the other, but it's all very closely interlinked in a world of, of with massive imbalances.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think you can get away from that at all. I mean, it's all interconnected when you start talking about global commodities, global trade, and that's very well put, uh, Diego. Where you go from transferring. Through trade wars to transforming and into people's cost of living, and sadly, that's um, you know there, there are a lot of different places we can go on that. But one one big one and one very obvious one that I think you uh, have views on is what's just recently happened in the property bubble that was China. But now China's got a major problem. I mean, I call this quad three stagflation, where you have. You know, you have rising rising inflation or cost of living and you have real growth slowing and slowing at quite uh, quite a fast rate in China at that. So that what does that blow up? It blows up the debtor. And now we got a big story here. And I I think there are a lot of different, you know, a lot of different opinions on where that ultimately goes. I'd love to hear yours, but also just, you know, just coming back to how you can't get away from it. It's all interconnected.
1: Yeah, I think China is a is a beautiful uh, case, though no, beautiful. Uh, <laughs> it's a perfect example of a lot of the the things that have been
0: happening. So it's a, maybe start, a, a beautiful uh, fractal or something that ends like in yeah, a, in a bad, it's like thing, a perfect right? storm. It's a beautiful problem. <laughs> yeah. It's like a beautiful case study.
1: Uh, but but basically, the situation in China is is very dire, and I, it worries me a lot. I, I, I compare China a little bit to, to I use the analogy of of Lehman squared in the sense that uh, you know two things first of all this is if it was a movie it would be the sequel it would be like lehman 2 we didn't really solve things in way. we transformed tra- transferred whatever and and you're now in a situation where we have these problems you know magnified to the point that there's not lehman 2 it's lehman squared and and this refers more globally to this mess that we created on a global scale where china is is a meaningful part of it so in china what you see is despite all these uh, beautiful words and plans to effectively change the economy and create, you know, rely less on on exports and become more more, uh, driven by consumption, domestic and stuff. And they've done a lot of great things there. But the Chinese economy and the Chinese model is very much obsessed with control. And it does it in a way that it, it, it imposes a lot of rigidities in the system, be it the one-child policy, the currency controls, the, the monetary policy mechanisms, uh, and everything else. And and when from the outside looks like an incredibly robust, uh, solid uh, framework, it's it's actually potentially quite fragile under certain circumstances. It's a bit like a like a concrete building in a, in an earthquake, right? It might look very very strong. And so with China, what you see is that the, the, the country basically has, let's start with, to keep things simple, let's start with the, the currency controls. So you decide that you want to, uh, control the, the exchange rate, the, the flow of money, and you make it very difficult for money to, to go. And then what you do is every time you, you face some, some crisis, you're going to effectively print a ton of money which cannot really exit freely, right? So, what happens with that money that is printed, uh, you know, and, and stays in the system? Well, it kind of flows into things like real estate and, and infrastructure. And and you sort of create this dynamic where it's been about 30% of the Chinese GDP is, is, is related to, to construction. And, and, and so you, you have this dynamic where all this liquidity, all this money, all these imbalances, in my opinion, actually flow into this and create higher and higher valuations and a model that has a lot of leverage and and, and also creates, China has its own idiosyncrasies, right? So one of them that worries me a lot is this very complex framework of implicit guarantees, right? Where does the government end? You have the banks effectively uh, pushing monetary policy. As, a, as, a, as an arm of the government. And so, what you end up is with this ginormous bubble, which just, it's a matter of time. They implode by their own weight because, you know, you've been creating or pushing valuations to a point where people can't really afford them, right? Because that's, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the model, the leverage, the, the nuisances uh, give a, take us to a point where, you know, uh, on Twitter I was saying that I think every is more like Bear Stearns than Lehman. But what I mean is we're going to look back at this, uh, what's happening right now, and connect the dots and see that this is the tip of a giant iceberg of, you know, leverage bubbles and implicit guarantees that is clearly too big to fail. But how, how does this end and, and how, how, well, clearly, in my opinion, you know, the, the first phase and we've seen today, and that's why you, you, you pick very timely Dates, you know, we've seen also today Fantasia, right? Another uh, big developer uh, not paying, right? The, the 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 bond going to 38 cents on the dollar, uh, massive plunge uh, overnight, and 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 this is that's why I say this is the tip of the iceberg. The model is there, it's it's of ginormous scale, and basically the government will have to intervene, yes or yes or yes. I don't see how, you know, they let this thing implode, and the way they intervene is by doing more of the same, by printing more. And so I think that, you know, this phase one, you might try to contain it. You will have some good headlines. Maybe we restructure this part. We implicitly guarantee that, but everything is actually coming through money printing. You know, there was a tweet a while ago that said, you know, PBOC, the Chinese central bank or whatever injects 10 billion uh, or the government, whatever it, it, it injects $10 billion uh, uh, dollars into the banks. And the answer was what I replied was, no, it didn't (laughs) injected 70 billion yuan. It's not the same. okay? you cannot you can print yuan, you cannot print dollars. Right. And and this is what's happening to China. So they will fix everything by printing yuan. And these ginormous problems that were originated by printing yuan are now so huge and they're creating inflation and bubbles that as these things implode, they become systemic and they give no choice but to uh, basically print more, and this is why we hold the view that is, 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 is it's, it's been it's not a new view. I mean, this is not a new problem, but we do think that the yuan is is the degree of freedom of the system. You know, you've seen in terms of entry point now the yuan is at the strongest we've seen in a, in, a yeah. in in a long time, and and I think this ties in with another big battle. You know, we talked earlier about currency wars and and the, perhaps the battle for reserve currency and how China is positioning its currency and its economy as, as a pillar of, of stability. And it, it really puzzles me how uh, well-behaved the yuan has been. Actually, the euro has collapsed, many, everybody left and right there are, are, are moving. They are just showing this relentless uh, stability, which uh, doesn't really add up in my opinion. And part of it is you know, over the last uh, few months and uh, we've seen a, a massive uh, move into people that were running away from, uh, we're looking for yield buying the Chinese government bond. I mean, 3% yeah. yield for 10 years, uh, and the currency is going up. I'm earning 3%. This is free money. Guess what? The Chinese one has, this is a, 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 text, a case study of, of, uh, carry trade and if volatility explodes, I think, and some of the uh, dynamics change, the model slows down, the energy crunch, the, uh, you know, all the things that are happening in China for me are a bit of a perfect storm. And we would be naive to think that uh, this is just uh, a China problem. This is, this is a huge problem It's a symptom. And, and we think the degree of freedom will be the currency, but obviously volatility uh, could, could pick up substantially and, and this contagion effects across obviously the sector, but EM and others are non-negligible. And this is happening with, Turkey printing 20% inflation for last month. I mean, there's just so many things happening that it's, uh, I know you feel like the boy who cried wolf, but come on, guys, there's just so many things happening here that to, to, to the red flags to worry about that uh, that I don't think they have an easy solution.
0: Yeah, the um, yeah, Chinese one was up 0.3% versus the dollar last week. On a three-month basis, it's up 0.4% against the dollar. It's just, uh, like you said, it's perplexing. But at the same time, I mean, you know, they have a closed capital account. I mean, like you said, they're printing one, they're not printing dollars. Um, you know, what's, what changes that? I mean, you can print to infinity, obviously, and you're not going to open the capital account. So how do you get the currency other than just, you know, and again, gravity is an answer. I get the answer. I mean, the, you could just start to show uh, instability or uh, rate of change of all in, in the currency. But, you know, for now, that seems to be, you know their bailiwick is. We got a close capital account, and this all stays inside China.
1: I mean, I think you have a lot more. Uh, I mean, you, you have a number of experts, including Kyle, coming. But but look, I think uh, let, let's put it this way: transparency and 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 <laughs> is not the biggest of the the strengths of, of the numbers. <laughs> um, I, I think I have enormous respect. I love the culture. I, I, I speak some some Chinese. I I. I it's nothing personal here i'm just saying that there's a lot of stuff that is very rigid and some of these things yeah. uh, don't add up they do not add up and and you could uh, of course you know when you look at the current account capital account when, when you start to fix certain things in the system uh something else will give right. and what we've given here is the domestic inflation bubbles mm-hmm. and, and they're now at point where they're just too big to fail and two plus two equals four. I mean, if they don't want the real estate market to implode, and that's about 70% of the savings of Chinese people and 30% of the GDP in the economy, et cetera, if they don't want this thing to completely implode, as, as we saw in Spain and many other places in the world, they're gonna have to print and, and, and provide huge amount of, of, of money that is, is, is more yuan. So if, if you add to that the, the crunch in energy prices, this could easily turn the Chinese uh, current account the wrong way, and and that's what happened uh, back back in you know, when, with oil at, at 120. Uh, so be careful because there are a number of mechanisms that will just expose uh, even more some of these dynamics. So I think the complacency that you see with with the current uh, dollar yuan or or the volatility uh, or other dynamics are are in my view not warranted and there are actually opportunities. I mean very often. You know, as, as I always say, insurance is cheapest when you need it the most. Yep. You know, it's it's always it's always when the S and P is at the highest that the VIX is at the lowest, and 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 very often you know these these things happen that way. So it's it's not easy, it's painful if you like us have been uh, you know negative on China and the yuan for a while. It's not fun, it's not painful, but I think this is a matter of when, not if, and uh, and and I think these dynamics are, are are accelerated, and you can see uh again the red flags over in in, in every dimension so I, I can see a number of catalysts that could trigger Not, don't get me started with geopolitics i mean we just overnight we saw news of uh, what's happening in taiwan uh in india uh these are pretty major issues uh you know surrounding china with 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 domestic bubbles with uh, defaults with uh, geopolitics with all sorts of stuff that are happening in one of the big engines of, of the world for the last you know two decades and uh, and certainly is something to be uh, quite mindful and, and monitor closely
0: yeah the um you know the thing about china i mean there's plenty of money to be made in on on the short side of china like i always say if you're you know, bearish on china just short china in fact shorting hong kong was even better because they don't mark up the clothes in the Hang Seng like they do in Shanghai or Shenzhen. <laughs> uh, but you, you really, whether it's the ETFs like FXI or CHIQ, which is, CHIQ is one of our shorts as a China consumer. I mean, there's there have been plenty of ways to make money on the short side of the Chinese. Now, the economy, like they can't change the dynamics. And I think that that's part of your answer is that, Everything around you, you can command and control whatever you want. You could, you could you'd, you'd reduce uh, time to three hours per week on video games, allegedly. You can do everything as crazy as a communist might do, but you can't change the stagflationary dynamics that's being, that you're importing you know, based on not just your economic realities and your response, but everybody else's. So that's, um, you know, it does, like, if you get into deep quad three stagflation, which is basically what China is developing now, not, we don't have that in the U.S. We still have 6% real GDP. Uh, in China, th- they're making up the GDP number to start with, and they're gonna have the lowest real GDP number that they've had since entering the WTO. So this is a, this is a brave new world to be, you know, a central planner, uh, in China and, 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 and think that the, the rest of the world's not gonna affect you.
1: I agree, uh, it, it goes both ways. I think on your point on, on ways to short China, um, I'll just make one, one comment is, uh, obviously this, these are total return gains. So right. you need to think about, you know, not only what the equity index does, but what does it do in your in your yep. currency, right? So the Venezuelan stock market could go up, you know, 10,000% <laughs> and you still lose money because the yeah. bolivar went to zero, right? So in fact, a massive devaluation would be extraordinarily bullish. For, for equities, right? Because on, on a total return basis. So that, that's just something to be mindful and why I actually think the currency, even if it has negative carry is interesting. And, you know, I think Taiwan happens to be a good proxy with actually positive carry. So uh, yeah. plenty of, of ideas there, but I, I think what you guys do is, is awesome. And, and, but you just need to be mindful of that total return. But yeah, I yeah. think the, the relationship you pointed out, it's, it's two way. Uh, China depends on the world, the world depends on China. And, and, and that's something that, you know, we've built generous expectations. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. we could provide a counter argument to the first 10 minutes of the discussion with commodities. What if China slows down and how does that change? And, and I think that's, that's why my point goes on to uh, also volatility, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, there, are, there are really strong forces in both directions and, and it slowdown down in China is a non negligible uh, risk to, to to look at and, and and based on the expectations of growth and consumption uh, in china and beyond uh, th- this is where perhaps uh, you know the frothiness of many parts of the market could could also be exposed
0: well it's it's, it's always the worst place a country and a government can be whether you're a communist or not is in the middle of a cyclical downturn with secular long term secular headwinds hitting your rate right in the Absolutely. face that aren't going away Absolutely. i mean
1: so, oh, absolutely. you
0: know, that's 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 where China is. I mean, it it harkens back to the well property bubbles in Japan. And it's not like, again, I hate making the analogy like it's China today. The, the, the problem with China today is that it's China. It's not Japan. It's China. <laughs> that's it. that's where they're at. I'm going to if you don't mind, I'm going to get like some of these questions are popping up. So if you don't mind and then we can that'll help us jump to some of your other um areas of expertise I think um, you know the in, in addition to everything that we've talked about this is the number one question from from Daniel in Connecticut you know what what is the biggest risk right now in global and basically in global macro markets because we've we've just sit on we've talked about China and energy obviously
1: I mean long term uh, the, the way I, I, I think about this uh, and, and tying in with portfolio construction last time we, we talked about this idea that uh, a portfolio is like like a team, right? Mm-hmm. And and we emphasize a lot this. Everybody idea. loves
0: that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think we emphasize this idea that you need strikers, midfielders, defenders, goalkeepers. This is the perspective of building a portfolio with respect to risk. Okay, uh, long risk, short risk, and here the, the you know the, the key lever of the of the system is volatility, mm-hmm. and this is where a sudden spike in the VIX around 30, which could happen today effectively will lead to today or any minute I mean uh, but today is a good candidate <laughs> that increase in volatility effectively creates an increase in value at risk which forces people to to cut risk and and uh, touches into liquidity and increases correlations and before you know it you have a effectively an exponential increase in in in, in risk metrics which actually feed into these mechanical collapses but the second Big dynamic which is unavoidable an and we've spent uh, a fair amount of time already today talking about it is inflation so when you build your team is it's not good enough to say i'm just going to have strikers midfielders and and goalkeepers uh, you actually need to know whether they're long or short inflation right and here the guys that are going to pay for this party are the guys that are short inflation be it cash fixed income and credit these are the the areas that i think are the weakest links and where I, I you know you want to avoid and and this spike in inflation and this risk of, of of inflation alongside with risk is is one where you know at the end of the day what do i mean by being short inflation what i mean is if you have a bond that you invest hundred dollars or euros and in 20 or 30 years it's going to pay you back 100 euros <laughs> i tell you what those hundred euros are going to buy you nothing Okay. Nothing. And this is what inflation means. So if you want to be in Telefonica for, you know, you'd rather be in the equity arguably than, than, than in the credit, right? Because from an inflation perspective. So I think looking at the question, I would say these two dimensions are very important. Build your risk with respect to be mindful on, on your portfolio, mindful on the risk side. You need things that will do in the different environments. And perhaps you need to, a lot of people have too way too many strikers way too complacent with, with a, a long market positioning, so we need to balance that out. And second, be careful because inflation is is, is the end game. But beyond that, other catalysts, we, we talked about energy being potentially, again, something that is surprising people coming coming from behind and, and, and not something anybody expected and putting some some bleak uh, questions on the table because we'd not be able to fix it. Geopolitics is obviously uh, uh, another one, but ultimately I think the 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 bubbles, the 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 size of the bubbles we've built uh, globally is is so large, and and the setup is so artificial that, you know, we're entering a phase where, uh, as this crisis comes, whichever the origin, we're going to see mommy and daddy doing way more of the same, way more printing, way more debt, and this is going to reinforce this this process that we discussed. So it's it's we're doing these iterations of the system. Uh, the, the complacency is 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 worrying and excessive the leverage is is there even if it might look uh, you know be less obvious or hidden and uh, and I think we just need to be uh, mindful you know play for the long term I'm not arguing you know for for just put everything in, in goalkeepers or strikers I've always <laughs> talked about have a balanced team take advantage of the volatility and also bear in mind that there's a new, Dimension here called inflation, and I'm going to put it in a in an example. I use I have uh, teenager uh, children, and uh, if if I explain, listen. If investments was a video game, uh, you have we have three levels, right? Level one is can you make money in nominal terms? So can you take your hundred dollars <laughs> and turn them into something more than a hundred dollars, right? And to do that is still relatively easy, right? If you just park your money. In in certain parts of fixed income or whatever, level two is can you make money in real terms? All right, and this is where we're now, right? And people are starting to awake to the reality that yeah, I know you're paying me one and a half percent for ten years, but that's already uh, you know losing me uh, you know over whatever another ten percent in real terms in terms of purchase power because of my inflation, and this is rising. And the third level is can you make money in real terms after taxes? And, and this is the one thing that it's certainly coming in, in as, as, a, uh, as governments try to close the circle with the bubbles and inequality they've created, they're gonna have to, uh, to basically do that. So it's, it's, uh, it's nothing new. I mean, if you do a bit of history reading, many of these things have happened, and, but they, they've certainly taken a, a dimension that we've never seen before.
0: Yeah, and, uh, I'm sure when you ask a teenager about paying their taxes, you, you take them to a place they've never been before, too. So nice job on that. <laughs> Good risk management. I love Absolutely. teaching, I love teaching my kids, like, how the game is played. I mean, it's, it's, they're certainly not going to learn that in school. Um, this, and, and I do think, I mean, your answer to that question, and actually the top a top three question is uh, from Josh in, in in Bristol in the UK. Uh, what would your actual goalkeepers and defenders be? I mean, I, I think what you said um, you know, prior to answering that, and and, and please please do the. You know, most people are still, and consensus is still long deflation, whether they, through duration or, or not, whether they admit it or not, that is the consensus net long position. You know, long, long-term treasuries. I mean, it's not, it's not gone away. It's paid off, you know, for, for years and years and years. And I think that that's a really important point, that you said that some of the weakest players on the field are the ones that used to be the strongest, which is very interesting and it's new.
1: Yeah, I think to, to your point on, on long term treasuries, I think one of the points I've been making for a long time is that the rules of the game have changed and they've changed in the sense that if you look at the textbook, the textbook says, look, if inflation comes, we need to hike interest rates. Right. Right. And that's, that's what the textbook says. Why? Because, right? It's, it's the mandate, whatever. The problem <laughs> is that the bubbles we've created with artificially low interest rates are so huge that if you try to uh, hike interest rates, the bubbles implode, and that's, that will effectively expose this this huge issue, which will force the central banks to eventually bring rates lower. So it's, it's a house of cards where valuations are artificially high, and we're in a new paradigm where you're gonna have low interest rates and high inflation. Mm-hmm. And you cannot, I, I believe that, yeah, we might get taper, you have to, but it's gonna be glacial, and if things start to happen the way they're starting to uh, unfold and unroll, it's going to be an extraordinarily difficult position for central banks to to do what they need to do with respect to inflation versus the systemic risk created by by bubbles. And uh, maybe the the policymakers have sold all their equity by then. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, by which point they'll be, <laughs> they seem to be now it's a good timing for them to be to be dumping this on ethical grounds. But jokes apart, I think you have this this dynamic that is 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 very tricky, so with respect to goalkeepers, uh, the best goalkeeper ever is it's going to be volatility and insurance. The problem with it is that it's extraordinarily expensive. Mm-hmm. You know if you bought something like the VIX, uh, you'd be down seventy percent on the year, well, maybe less now because the market is rallying. But it's not just about the nominal move in the VIX it's how much it costs you to keep that position. And, yeah. and this year has been on average about 10% per month. So it's it's like, you know, it's brutal. So your $100 become 90, become 81, and this drain has been brutal. So by the time the event happens and the VIX you know goes through the moon, you're effectively capitalizing from 30 cents. Yeah. So you need the VIX to triple in order for you to break even if you're just for this year. And this is why it's so difficult, right? You want to be have that risk premium, you want to be covered, but the VIX has been extraordinarily painful and difficult. If you try to do things like puts in the SP, good luck. I mean, the thing has been a straight line. You look stupid having bought those puts. If you do like we do, which we you know as the market goes up, we reinvest and buy more insurance, it means that yeah, we're loaded on insurance here but it's been a very painful path. So I guess it's true in football, it's true in insurance, in markets, you know, being, being a, a goalkeeper is difficult, but I think you need them. Uh, and I do believe, you know, we, we haven't talked about gold yet. I, I I think gold has the, it's it's a textbook anti-bubble in, in my view. It's, it's one of those assets that it's, in my opinion, artificially cheap relative to all the currency uh, story we've discussed. It's, in my opinion, potentially going to be an effective hedge, even if it hasn't done that well in, in on the outset of previous crises. I think because of the dynamics we discussed and central bank responses will do well. Uh, uh, and then the third uh, parameter is, is the contrarian nature. And it's been an absolute slaughter of uh, gold, gold miners. So I think, you know, your goalkeeper should include certainly, I mean, long-term treasuries, uh have the potential to make to make money in in nominal terms um uh, they, they they will suffer from inflation but so so do many other things i think gold uh has potential to do things the vigs, but the timing is tricky insurance in general so i think you know the the building that defense uh it's relevant but also you can just take some risk off your on, on the offensive side so if you if you don't have uh, ways to find the the, the the good defenders, at a minimum, you should avoid leverage and you should be more cautious. And and that's what you need to do uh, first and foremost. I think in this environment, this is a time to be a little bit cautious and, and, and avoid excessive risks. But if you can actually find uh, ways in which you can uh, defend the portfolio and, and generate big returns when everything collapses, as we certainly hope to we, we, to, to do with with our mandate then then that allows you to have a more balanced book that takes advantage of this volatility but it's, uh, it's a it's an increasingly more fragile environment and and certainly very difficult job to be a <laughs> to be a goalkeeper.
0: Yeah, nobody nobody said that this job was easy over time. That's for sure. But thank you. Uh, we're unfortunately out of time. I could keep uh, asking questions for another hour, and so could everybody else. But uh, thank you for your time and also for your framework. I mean, people now know exactly how to ask uh, Diego the questions within his framework and goalkeepers, defenders. I love it. Uh, so thanks for leading us off. We we appreciate your time. It's been uh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you
1: so much, everybody,
0: and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. All right. Thank you. Uh, Up
2: next, we have the one and only Ben Hunt. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedgeye. Don't forget to check out hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors and accuracies or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye's subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgei. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer To the terms of service at hedge.com slash terms of service.